Blog Talk Radio. The following program is brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Hi, my name's John Carousella, and I'm your host for Convergence on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Convergence is to consciousness as gravity is to the material world. In small amounts, gravity is overwhelmed by every other fundamental force of the universe. But gravity has something nothing else has. It's cumulative. The more matter you collect, the more gravity you get, until it becomes the most powerful force of the material world. I think convergence is like that too. Only in this case, we're working with truth. The more truth we collect, the more convergence we experience. Connections, relationships, resonance of ideas and concepts, science and mysticism. Lately, deep truths just seem to be coming together, even as many of the illusions around us are falling apart. As within, so without. As above, so below. I know I'm feeling it, and I'll bet you are too. For the next 90 minutes, we'll be exploring concepts and topics that in some way or another bring us around to a deeper truth. Join me and my guests for this week's experience of Convergence. Welcome to Convergence. I'm your host, John Carasella. I had originally intended to offer some different material today, but something happened this week that changed my course. My beloved, silly, fuzzy, soft, gentle, big-hearted black dog, Tucker, passed away just two days ago. So I'm offering something of a tribute to him on today's show. The first segment I want to share with you is a reflection on the best in the world. It's a story that came to me when I was hanging out in my backyard one evening. Tucker was often my companion when I would do lengthy meditation or journey work at my suburban home in Silicon Valley. So while the reflection isn't about him specifically, it's a profound reminder to me just how important good company can be when one is on a spiritual quest, or a quest of any kind, I guess. The second segment is a conversation with my Celtic shamanism teacher, Tom Cowan. I loved my Celtic shamanism training, in part because it felt so comfortable to me, kind of like coming home. Tucker, of course, was family. Whenever I would see him, less frequently since my marriage ended, sadly, I would feel the same kind of welling up of comfort, of warmth, of of home. The other reason I want to share my conversation with Tom is that the Celts would say death is just something that happens in the middle of a long life. I feel like that's appropriate to remind myself at this moment. Of course, Tucker's passing makes me sad and I look forward to seeing him again, but more than that, his death is an opportunity for me to remind myself that death isn't a permanent condition. It's not an immutable end. It's just something that's hard to see beyond. And the other reminder is that life, life is precious. Every moment, every opportunity, 
to connect with and share with a loved one, or even a stranger who represents the possibility of connection, intimacy, friendship, is precious. Every breath is precious. Even more, every interaction with nature is an opportunity to dwell in grace. Tucker did a pretty good job of dwelling in grace. Which brings me to the third segment. Another reflection. In this one, Tucker played a central role. It's a sharing of the moment when I stopped seeing things outside of me as other, as objects to be puzzled on, and started seeing everything as the divine experiencing the creation and the divine looking back at me. I'll be back at the end of the show for a few final thoughts. Let's listen to The Best in the World at Something. The Best in the World at Something. Everything is the best in the world at something. I came to this conclusion one evening when I was doing some deep journey work. I was out in my backyard, sitting on a blanket on the grass, with my big black dog, Tucker, under a full moon. It must have been close to midnight. The sky was clear, the air cool and crisp. My big redwood tree stood tall, and the moon shone bright above its tall spire. I looked at the moon, and I looked at Tucker. Let's howl at the moon, I said. And Tucker joined in. We howled at the moon just for a moment, pretending we were wolves. It was funny and cute, and the moon was so beautiful. I was drawn to a thought. Wolves, wolves adore the moon. They're the best in the whole world at adoring the moon. They adore the moon so much that they can't help themselves but howl in ecstasy and communion with it. And it dawned on me. Everyone and everything is the best in the world at something. It struck me that this was another way of understanding the medicine of a particular plant or animal, or at least part of it. Of course, wolf medicine is more than being good at adoring the moon. But if they're the best in the world at adoring the moon, maybe that's an important attribute of their medicine that I should understand. You know, thinking about medicine, the medicine of complex creatures is more complex. It's trickier to master than the medicine of simple creatures. I learned about water strider medicine one summer day by a creek. 45 minutes of carefully watching them interact with one another and with the world. And I learned a lot about what their medicine was. Did you know that they're territorial and that they can flatten themselves to avoid being eaten 
shed virtually all the water out of their bodies and lay squashed on a rock as long as their hydrophilic little feet are still in contact with the water. That's crazy. But I guess that's another tale. Wolves are much more complex creatures. But they just might be the best in the world at adoring the moon. I looked up at my big, tall redwood tree. What would it be the best in the world at? Sequoia Sempervirens, the tallest tree and the longest-lived. What would that make you good at? And I heard a voice say, Bearing witness. Yeah, that made sense. Standing so tall, experiencing the world through thousands of seasons, what stories are encoded in those rings, year after year after year? A veritable Akashic record keeper in the flesh. Temperature, moisture, sound, sun, and cloud cover. Every photon of light that bounced against it, day after day, year after year and standing so tall with such a view. Bearing witness. Something redwood trees are, perhaps, the best in the world at. I was having fun. So much to enjoy when, when you think about it. Everything around me had a special best-in-the-world gift, if only I could discover it. And then I asked... What about us? What are we the best in the world at? Human beings. So often we think of human beings as a, as a scourge of the natural world, antagonists to the gentle communal order of nature, with our disconnected, megalomaniacal behavior. But we had to have a gift, right? We had to be the best in the world at something. And I sat, and I thought and I felt around for what that might be. Change. We're the best in the world at creating change. As I said it, it unfolded so clearly. It made so much sense. We're change makers. We're agents provocateur, the ultimate shapeshifters we changed not only ourselves in as many ways as we could discover, but we've shifted the shape of our very world. Change happens all the time on our little blue planet. Marcus Aurelius wrote, Life is change. Our thoughts give it meaning. We live in a maelstrom of change. And somehow, crazily, we resist change as if it's as if it's a horror. But reflecting on it, it's really only the change we don't control that we resist. Otherwise, we embrace change wrought from our own hands, our own will, like a fish takes to water. We are the change makers, the best in the world. I contemplated how that could be a gift to my fellow creatures. I realized that I could ask the creek if it was happy with its course, 
or whether it would enjoy experiencing having part of it be a pond. I could ask the squirrels or the fairies if they wanted anything to be different about their woods. I was a, a veritable cosmic handyman available to attend to, repair, or improve the landscape and spiritscape all around me. Perhaps my earthly brethren and spiritual neighbors had a hankering for some music. No problem. A little more open space for sunshine? Can do. A rock garden? More color? A little shade? Extra warmth in the winter? Just say the word. I realized that all my capacities as a human to change my environment were not inherently evil. Change was happening all around me, induced by the bugs and the birds and the rodents and the plants and the sun and everything else that played a part in this symphony that is life. I was just a particularly dexterous participant. I could use my medicine in service to those who were less able to facilitate change. I could bring medicine to them. I would argue that, to be fair, humans are dosing the world with our unique brand of medicine in far too great a volume. And mostly, we're doing it unconsciously. But that doesn't mean we have to see our medicine as bad or wrong. We can change. That's our gift. As surely as we can change our environment, we can change how we change our environment. The minute we see the world as a world full of peers, colleagues and clients and patients, the needy and the deserving and the holy, and when we see our medicine, our best in the world medicine, as the capacity to change, gosh, what will happen? That night, I enjoyed understanding my human medicine and the company of my dog and the beauty of the moon and the softness of the grass and the gentle witnessing of my redwood tree. With all of those experts surrounding me and with all deference to Marcus Aurelius, in addition to change, Life can be, also, very, very good. We'll be right back. At Firefly Willows L-I-V-E, we're working hard to be your trusted source for fun, enlightening, and heart-centered information and community. And we're passionate about the art of transformative media, the new leading edge of communication in our highly connected, media-rich world. If you're passionate about facilitating change and you have gifts or ideas you'd like to share, come join us. Host a show or be a guest or connect us to an amazing speaker or teacher whose message is too good to miss. There's always room for courageous, knowledgeable change makers, inspired artists, and new ideas. Let us know you're interested. Send an email to info at fireflywillows.com. We're Firefly Willows, L-I-V-E, helping you find and shine your inner light. Welcome back to Convergence. I'm your host, John Carousella, and my guest for today's spirited conversation is Tom Cowan. 
Tom is a shamanic practitioner specializing in Celtic visionary and healing techniques. He's an internationally respected teacher, author, lecturer, and tour leader, and has taught across Europe as well as here in the United States. Tom is the author of a number of books, including Yearning for the Wind, Celtic Reflections on Nature and the Soul, and Fire in the Head, Shamanism and the Celtic Spirit. Tom's formal training in shamanism began with Michael Harner at the Foundation for Shamanic Studies. He has since studied with the Foundation, as well as other teachers of shamanism and spirituality. His lifelong interest in mystical traditions led him to develop ways to practice shamanism in the context of Celtic spirituality. In this, Tom combines core shamanism with traditional European spirit lore to create distinctly Celtic shamanic practices. Tom serves on the board of directors of the Society of Shamanic Practitioners, that's shamansociety.org, and he lives in New York's Hudson River Valley, where he offers training, workshops, spiritual retreats, and healing sessions for groups and individuals. Tom can be reached at www.riverdrum.com. I know you'll enjoy our conversation today. Welcome, Tom Cowan. Thank you. So, Tom, uh, it's it's good to be talking with you again. I, I always love having the chance to study with you and work with you. But one of the things that I haven't done with you is go on one of your tours to the British Isles. Uh, are you planning any of those soon? Because I, I looked at riverdrum.com and I didn't see any. Well, you know, I don't think I will be doing any soon. I the last one we did was in 2000, and so it's been, what, 12 years? Oh, my goodness. Uh, I have taught over there since then, uh, and I think in the future it might be more a uh, question of just going over and doing a retreat or workshop and teach, but oh. not so much uh, running all over the countryside. <laughs> <laughs> right. I, do, those, that must have been enjoyable, though. Oh, it was, Yeah. Uh, we always took a rather small group of like not more than 20, 25 people. And um, we had our own van and transportation. And we went to all the mystical sites and the sacred sites in Ireland and Scotland and uh, spent a lot of time there doing shamanic work, ceremony, meditation, things like that. There's a lot of uh, interest in, I guess, in the U.S. Uh, as well in in the sacred waters and sort of reviving our attentiveness to and care for sacred waters, wells, and things like that. Um, mm -hmm. is, was that some of the stuff that you did when you were over in, in the British Isles? Yeah, we did. We went to a number of wells. There's wells all over Ireland and Scotland. And, you know, the Irish used to be called the people of the wells. I don't know if they're still called that or not, but they had a real reverence and love for, you know, that kind of mysterious place where water comes up out of the earth and, it's always kind of fresh and clean. And so we, we did some a lot of ceremonies around wells and the uh, stone circles and the dolmens and the passage graves and things like that, too. Mm. Well, sounds fantastic. Uh, you know, the whole connection between the Celtic tradition, the Celtic way, and what we, those of us who have studied with the Foundation for Shamanic Studies and, and Michael Harner's work, um, the, the notion of, sh of shamanism, as opposed to Wicca, you know, I think there's always been a, uh, a popular correlation between the Celtic way and Wicca, but the yeah. connection between the Celts and shamanism was something that my, my perception was that I had no notion of this until I read Fire in the Head. Mm -hmm. How did you find it? 
Well, in some ways, uh, I've known about Celtic spirituality for a long time because uh, you know, I grew up in a family that is Scots-Irish and Welsh and English and also German. But I can't say that uh, the family was practicing Celtic spirituality, but I was always aware of the fact that the Irish and the Scots and the Welsh had a kind of uh, more mystical view of Christianity and, and had a view that uh, the sacred is right here in nature, right here in the earth. There was much less of a split between what we, in shamanism we call ordinary reality and non-ordinary reality. So when I started practicing shamanism, I really just uh, knew early on that I wasn't going to do it in a Native American way, although I studied and hung out with some Native American teachers. But I knew that wasn't my path, so I started looking back into the European traditions, and I uh, was trained, trained as an historian back in the 60s, and I taught history at the college level for about 10 years. So, you know, looking into the past and studying the past and looking at folkways and healing practices and earlier forms of spiritual devotions, I mean, that, that wasn't alien to me. I, I had been doing that anyway as an historian. So um, I just focused more acutely, I guess, at looking at things that smacked of shamanism. And since I knew what a shaman was, and I had what I like to think of as shaman eyes, I could look at all those old tales and myths and practices that have been around a long time and see if they uh, looked like shamanism. And many of them did and, and do, as you know. So that's sort of how I fell into it, I guess. I got the impression that it was a process of uh, of almost like archaeological excavation, or at least anthropological excavation. It is. It is. I think of myself that way, too, that I'm digging around in the past. And I shouldn't just say the past, because people still practice some of these shamanic techniques and healing practices today. They may not call it shamanism. That was the tricky part, is, is that it didn't seem to me like it was, it didn't look like shamanism. It looked like folktales. Yeah, well, that, that's true. <laughs> and they are folktales and fairy tales, but my approach was always just to keep digging around in those tales and those legends and look for shamanism. And it's there because all those tales go back to tribal times and, you know, pre even pre-Christian times. Mm. So there's bound to be shamanic elements in those tales well it's certainly fire in the head lit that up for me in a, in a very big way I, I thank you very much for producing that work it was terrific mm -hmm. you know when when i first studied with you one of the first things we talked about were the tuatha de Danann and the fomorians mm -hmm. and i think our listeners might find a little bit of grounding in the overall celtic experience helpful. So can you share a little about the history of, of Donna and the, and the she and so on? Uh, well, thousands of books have been written on this, so I'll try to you know, give it to you in a nutshell here. But um, it's, I guess it's like uh, any early indigenous people is that they believed in the spirit world, the Celts. And like other indigenous people, they see some of the spirits as friendly and helpful and others as bringing chaos and destruction. And so in the Irish tradition, the spirits are the gods who brought civilization and law and music and healing and uh, 
knowledge and wisdom were called the Tuatha de Danann, the children of the goddess Dana. And they saw the other camp of spirits or gods as the Fomorians, who um, are not necessarily evil gods, but they always bring a sense of disruption or chaos. They're often seen in the weather when it gets ferocious, like tornadoes and hurricanes and tsunamis and forest fires, and uh, and just you know things that go wrong. And eventually, the, these early tales about these gods become kind of uh, watered down, you might say, and they become tales about the fairy world. Uh, and so these same two groups are seen among the fairies uh, as some of them are helpful and some of them are mischievous. Mm-hmm. And as I was saying, most indigenous cultures have some kind of a sense of the spirits that help us and the spirits that hinder or harm us. And that's what the, mm-hmm. the Donans and the Fomorians are. So the Tuatha de Danann and the Shi are the same? Pretty much. Do we? Do we? Uh, the Shi is a word that I don't know when it was first used, but it's been around for centuries to mean both the fairy world and the spirits that live in the fairy world. Some of them are fairies, and some of them are ancestors. There's there are beliefs in various places that when you die, you go to the Shi, and there's also beliefs that when the Tuatha de Danans became invisible, there was a belief that at one point they lived right here in ordinary reality and had bodies something like ours, but they disappeared. Other cultures have stories of an earlier race that disappeared also, like, like the Anasazi, for example, or Atlantis. So mm-hmm. when the Danans and the Fomorians disappeared or became invisible, they went into the Shi as well. So the Shi is kind of a big, broad term that can mean a lot of things. But yes, so the Donans are in the Shi, and in some sense they're part of the fairy world and the fairies themselves. Mm. So there's so much that I want to talk about with you. <laughs> I want to share. Uh, there, I have a list here. Uh, I want you to say something about about Lu, about the Oren Moor, about Taliesin, and about Finn McCool. Okay. And I think, let, let's start with Finn McCool, because his name is so cool. Okay, yes, he has a cool name. Um, he's something like uh, the Robin Hood story in England, though he's an Irish character. And many commentators think he was at one time one of the gods. But the stories about him usually don't emphasize that. They're, he's thought of more as just a supernatural being or even a historic character. But he uh, lives in the woods. He has a band of men called the Finians and, and their women who live in the, in the forests. And they're something like hunters and warriors. Sometimes they uh, help defend a king against enemies. But they tend to live outside the law, outside of society. They have their own laws. And so many of the tales about Finn McCool and his men are tales about encountering the spirit world. So they live in the forest, and the forest is, has always been like an entry into the spirit world for the Celts. And it's the spirit world itself. The forest has a kind of dual nature. So Finn McCool then becomes kind of a leader of these mystical warriors and hunters, and even they're considered shamans. 
uh, who know how to slip into the other world, and they have adventures with uh, the fairy world and the spirits there. They're a really interesting source of shamanic lore, if you're, we were talking earlier. As you look around for Irish shamanism, you couldn't do better than just to read some of the stories about Finn McCool. Are there convenient uh, sources of Finn McCool stories? Well, there are and there aren't. There's, as I said, there's thousands of books written on so many Celtic topics, and they all have similar names, like Irish fairy tales, Irish mm-hmm. folk tales, Irish legends, Celtic legends, mm-hmm. Celtic folk tales, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so okay. I, I hesitate to try to say, well, here's the best one. You know, the, with the Internet, if you really just wanted to um, Google Sigma Cool and see what's there, You'd you'd find a lot of material. Okay, well that's and then a lot of his stories too are they do get stuck in these bigger anthologies of Irish tales or Celtic tales. So it's kind of hard to point somebody in one direction. Right. Okay. So Finn McCool, it was uh, what I liked about Finn McCool was that he lived in the forest and he was uh, a slippery character in that he slipped back and forth between this reality and the and the other world. Yeah. But Taliesin was a different different kind of character, though. Well, Taliesin is Welsh and uh, basically known as a, a bard, a poet, a seer. Sometimes, like Merlin, he's thought of to be like a wizard. But wizard is a tricky word. Uh, in some ways, it means doing what shamans do or doing what healers do or doing what psychics do. But anyway, he's this type of character, very similar to Merlin, although he's known... I guess primarily as a poet, and uh, he has an interesting origin because he seems to have been born like three times. <laughs> he was a boy named Gwen, and then the goddess Caradwen hired him to tend her cauldron that was meant to bring a potion of uh, wisdom to her son. But little Gwen got it and became wise, and then so Caradwen chases him around and eventually. He shapeshifts and she shapeshifts, and they go back and forth in different animals and birds and things. Finally, uh, she devours him, and she becomes pregnant by him and gives birth to him again, and and then puts him in a bag and throws him out in the ocean, where he is sort of like in the womb of the sea for 30 or 40 years, and gets washed up on shore. And he's still a little baby, but he has a real bright, shining face, so full of wisdom and knowledge that the man who finds him calls him Taliesin, which means uh, radiant brow or shining face, something like that. And he grows up, uh, you know, to become this all-powerful poet, seer, and wizard. So he is, but he's different than Finn McCool, although might have some similar powers, but he's not an outlaw living in the forest. He's more or less a character who, like Merlin, kind of, Hangs around courts and kings. Yes, a courtly fellow. A courtly fellow, yeah. So those are those are two very interesting, very contrasting aspects of the shamanic way for the Celts. One is a an adventurer in the woods, and the other is a bard and a court guy. Yeah, right. In some ways, uh, Taliesin is kind of like a druid. I think sort of like Merlin too. He becomes an advisor to. Uh, you know, courtly uh, realms and courtly people. But the reason he can be an advisor or he can, he's got, you know, wise counsel is that he does have this this interesting connection with the other world of having been born out of the 
the goddess's womb mm. and having been born out of the sea. Mm. Interesting. Okay, so now there's a lot of talk uh, and, and a lot of focus in the Celtic way on the goddess. Yeah. Uh, Donna and Bridget and so on. Lou is a little a little counterpoint, counterbalance to that. Tell, yeah, tell, well, tell Lou, us about Lou. He's interesting from the point of view that he's partly uh, Donnan and partly a Fomorian. His mother was a Fomorian, but his father was a Donnan. So he has the nature of both. And he's a well-loved character because he he's good at many things. In fact, one of his nicknames is he's the the god who has all the skills. Uh, the story about him is that when he finally decided he's going to go to Terra and live with his other's people, the Donans, he has to have a skill to get through the gates of Terra. And the gatekeeper asks him what he can do, and he says, well, I'm a carpenter. And the gatekeeper says, we have a carpenter. And he says, I'm a poet. And they say, we have a poet. And he says, I'm a healer. We have a healer. He says he's a warrior, a hunter, and goes on and on, and a musician and so forth. And they, they, the gatekeeper says, we have all those people. And Lou says, well, do you have anyone who has all those skills, who's good at all those things? And the gatekeeper says, no, we, we, we don't. So he said, well, then I'm different because I do have all the skills. <laughs> and uh, they let him in. And so he becomes uh, a kind of god or spirit for being able to do things well. He has skillful means, as the Buddhists might say. And some of the stories about him get told over the years, and he becomes a character that today we call the jack-of-all-trades. And, you know, jack-of-all-trades is very similar to Lou, who has all the skills. And he can be kind of a scamp or kind of a trickster figure because he wears all these different hats, and he can look at things from so many different points of view. He's not limited to just looking at it as a, as a carpenter or as a hunter or as a warrior. But he can see things from many different sides. And that ability to see things from many sides has always been considered to be a, a mark of wisdom among the Celts. When I think of that particular characteristic, I think of human beings, right? The contrast between human beings and our, our more specialized brothers who are you know, the trees or the mm -hmm. wolves or, uh, you know, the rabbits or the beavers, they, they seem to be a more specialized kind of perceiver uh, and actor in this, in, on the stage of creation, whereas humans are these very general, general purpose kind of mm -hmm. creatures. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Perhaps that's there. I have an affinity for the character and and role of Lou because he seems like he's more like mm -hmm. one of us. Well, he is, and that's you know as I was saying earlier, the Tuatha Dé in some ways are not so much gods as just supernatural people or people who are highly evolved or are more perfect than we are today. And as I mentioned, other cultures you know have similar stories about a race of people who lived back at the beginning of time and who were more highly evolved than we are and, and who in some ways have the original instructions of how to live on the earth, how to live decently and reverently and sustainably. And that at some point, this race of people disappeared or they consciously decided to 
retreat into the invisible places in the earth and let us humans, people that are you know, more human and filled with more faults than they, take over and see what we can make out of the earth. But they're always there to help us. That's one of the uh, things that you know from shamanism that we, uh, we know is that those spirits are there and you know, we can journey to them and create a practice or a devotion around them and they can help us be human beings because you know, it's not easy being a human being, as somebody once said. Mm, no, it's not. So with that in mind, uh, one of the things that I wanted to talk about today was sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Right, our, you know, you know, our self determination. Our, what is it? What does personal sovereignty mean? What is it? How do you define it? And and I think it has a has a major role in 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 the Celtic way. So maybe if you can contextualize that, what is it, and how does it fit into the the Celtic traditions? Sure. Well, the word itself is, I guess, somewhat strange to us because we today I think when we hear the word sovereign, we think of a, a nation, like you know, a sovereign nation. Or we think of a monarch, you know, the sovereign, Queen Elizabeth or whatever. Uh, But Webster's definition really is not so much about politics and nations. It's more about being able to have autonomy and independence and, you know, govern yourself, uh, direct yourself, have freedom to uh, decide what you want to do, take charge of your life, it's not to say that you know we never have to have any outside influence on what we do. We're not totally sovereign or totally independent because we have to live in society and we have to live uh, you know in this physical world that has limitations. But the ideal is there that um, to be able to take charge of your life and to make decisions of how your life will go. I mean that's that's one of the uh, I guess one of the ideals or values that human beings everywhere have always valued. And in some of the uh, Irish and Celtic stories, uh, sovereignty is a woman or a goddess, and she's also the goddess of the land. So there's a connection then between honoring the land and being close to the land and listening to the land speak and having sovereignty. So one way that this uh, gets expressed in the Celtic world is that the king only has authority to be king and to rule over other people because he's married to the goddess of the land, whose name is sovereignty. So the king himself, as an embodiment of sovereignty, you know, has all these characteristics of being independent and autonomous and making decisions and all. But he's not totally uh, free because he has to honor what the goddess of the land wants. And, you know, she's the great mother. She's the source of life. So when the king is inaugurated, he's really married to the land rather than inaugurated. In fact, the Irish language, I don't know if this is still true today or not, but uh, for a long time the Irish language did not have a word for inauguration. When a king or a leader was assumed office, it was considered to be a marriage. They used the word for marriage for that ceremony because it was very clear that the ruler only had power and authority and uh, legitimacy because the ruler spoke for the land who is the god of sovereignty. Mm. So that's part of, uh, of, of how that fits in. 
Should we talk about the uh, the four directions and yeah. the Irish spirit wheel? Yes, yeah, that'd be good. Okay, yeah, that, well, it's another place to see how important the sovereignty is, is that, you know, like Native Americans who have medicine wheels, the Irish have a medicine wheel too, although it's a little strange to use that phrase medicine wheel because it's not exactly what the Irish use, it's a Native American term. But I think most indigenous cultures had some sense that on the horizon are four directions, and each of these directions holds different kinds of power or spirit uh, or value. And in the Irish tradition, the east uh, is prosperity, the south is music, the west is knowledge, the north is battle, and the center is sovereignty or kingship. So that the king who sits in the center is really responsible for this entire wheel. And my own practice over the years has been to use this wheel like Native Americans use their medicine wheel, and that is to think about my life as being lived within this sacred circle or horizon. And in the East is prosperity, and when I think about that, I think about the things that I do to make a living and how I make my home and about my family and my neighbors and, uh, you know, the things that make life comfortable and, and pleasing. It's, it's kind of like the work I do and the people that I live among. That's my prosperity. Mm -hmm. In the South, music, I think of that as the, the kind of creativity that um, I bring to enhance life or to enrich life. And it, it's like, like music has to be played to exist. I love the fact that music doesn't really exist on a CD or on a piece of sheet music. You have to make it come into being. Mm. Sheet music is sort of like a map, perhaps, but it's you know it's not it's not music. So I think when I think about the South, is I think about my obligation to bring things into being, to to create, to to make uh, my life beautiful and sustainable and healthy. In the West is knowledge, and when I think about that, it, the knowledge that the Celts have always valued is what we might call sacred knowledge or wisdom. It's not just knowledge of how to bake a cake or tie your shoe or play tennis, but it's the kind of knowledge that lets you see what the meaning of life is and why you're here, where you came from, and uh, what you're supposed to do. So it's more like wisdom, actually. It's more like sacred knowledge. And uh, I look to the West in my own life to see you know, what, what my life is about, what life in general is about, and why am I here, and questions like that. And then in the North is battle. And uh, fortunately, I don't have too many battles going on in my life. <laughs> mm -hmm. But in some ways, I do have to uh, struggle, as everybody struggles. There are challenges. There are things that you know, get in my way. And one of the phrases that's used a lot in the old stories about the North is rough places, that the North is also the direction it has rough places. And I think I could say almost every day of my life there are rough places somewhere in the course <laughs> of the day. Right. So even though the North is battle and it sounds like war and warriors and soldiers, it has a much more... Uh, homey meaning when you just stop and think about what are your challenges every day 
what are the things that uh, give you rough places to get across. So those are the four directions, and that's kind of how I, I think about my life. But then when I come to the center, I am confronted with this sovereignty figure that I'm in charge. You know, I'm the king of my life, you could say. I'm the ruler of my life. And if I embrace my sovereignty, it means I'm going to take responsibility for my life. And taking responsibility for my life means being responsible for each of those four directions so that I can't just uh, expect someone else to do all these things for me. And I think also that just like the king who has to be listening to the goddess of the land, I have an obligation too as a, as a spiritual man, as, as a shaman, to be listening to what the land says, and what the land needs, so that my, uh, my life is uh, not selfish but is lived in accordance with the, the, the laws of nature and the, the laws of the spirit world. So that's, it's another place where we can find uh, sovereignty. Well, I think understanding the substance of sovereignty is, first of all, it's really important. And second of all, it's, there's a lot of subtlety in this that isn't illuminated on first pass. No, it's not. And, and I think it has a lot to do with the divine feminine and, uh, and, and sustainability and non-duality. I mean, there's a lot in there. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, yeah. so so if could you tell us tell a story about? I think it's Sir Gawain. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his encounter. If it, it, it's the story of Dame Ragnell, is that the one you're thinking of? Uh, yeah, they're out and they they meet this woman who insists that somebody has to marry her. The story it, it backs up a little bit that Arthur one day is out, you know, riding through the the forest, and there are different versions of the story, but he ends up being challenged by this green knight. And uh, they have a, a sword fight, and they fight all day long. And the Green Knight wins, and he's ready to uh, take off Arthur's head. And uh, Arthur pleads for uh, mercy. And the Green Knight says, well, I'll let you live, but I'm going to give you a riddle. And if you can solve the riddle in a year and a day, come back, tell me the answer, and I won't take off your head. If you don't have the right answer, then I will chop off your head. So Arthur says, okay, what's the riddle? And the Green Knight says, it's a question. What does a woman want most in all the world? And Arthur thinks, oh, boy, this is going to be a toughie. (laughs) And he goes back to Camelot, and his nephew, Sir Gawain, says, well, I'll help you. And so for a whole year, they ride through the realm, and they ask all kinds of women, what is it a woman wants most in all the world? And they hear lots of different answers. Some say they want... Uh, beauty, some want money, some want a good husband or a good lover, healthy children, um, long life. But Arthur and Gawain know that really none of these is, is the answer that the Green Knight's looking for. So a year and a day go by, and they have a bunch of answers, but they don't think any of them is the correct one. But being honorable men, they go back to that clearing in the woods where the Green Knight is for uh, the, the rendezvous with them. And as they're going, they come across a hideously ugly woman that they haven't met before. And they think, well, maybe we should ask her. She, she may know. So they ask her, and she says, yes, I do know what the answer is that a woman wants most in the world. But she said, I'll only give it to you 
if you let me marry this handsome young knight here, Sir Gawain. And so uh, Sir Gawain says, I'll, I'll gladly marry this hideous woman <laughs> if she can give us the right answer. And so they make the deal, and the woman whispers the answer into Arthur's ear, and he thinks, oh, that is it. That's the answer. So they continue on and meet the Green Knight. And the Green Knight says, well, what did you find out? What does a woman want most in the world? And Arthur says, she wants sovereignty. And the Green Knight says, that's, that's right. And so Arthur keeps his head, and uh, Sir Gawain has to marry this loathly woman. Sometimes the, the name of the story is the, the loathsome damsel, or the loathly woman, because she's hideous and ugly and smells bad and looks like she's been homeless for about the last 10 years. So they go back to court, and Gawain, and they find out her name. Her name is Dame Ragnall. And so Dame Ragnall and Sir Gawain marry. And on the first night of their marriage, uh, Dame Ragnall is in her room preparing for the evening. And uh, Gawain is preparing the wedding bed for her. And when she comes out, she's the most attractive woman he's ever seen. And he said, who are you? And she says, I'm Dame Ragnall, who you married this afternoon. And he says, but you don't look like her. And she says, no, I don't. She says, I've been under a spell. And half the time I must appear to be hideous and loathly and repulsive. And the other half I can look like myself, which is how you see me now. And uh, she says to him, so you, you have a choice. You can have me beautiful during the day. And everyone at court will admire me and admire you and think, my, how lucky you are to have such a beautiful wife. But at night, I'll be ugly and hideous to sleep with. Or, she said, you could have me hideous during the day, and people will feel sorry for you, and they'll shun you, and they won't want me around. But at night, I'll be wonderful to sleep with. So what do you want? And Sir Gawain says, well, this really affects you more than me. So what do you want? And as soon as he says that, she lets out this gorgeous smile and says, you've broken the spell. I don't have to be ugly at all anymore. And what broke the spell was sovereignty, that he let her be in charge of her own life. So it, it's a wonderful story. And the, the wife of Bathtail in Chaucer is very similar. And you can find this kind of story in uh, other cultures too. But... Um, the, the wisdom teaching behind this story is that this is what not just women, but everyone wants. They want to be in charge of their own life. They want to make the decisions that most affect them. And uh, by allowing her to have sovereignty, to, to be sovereign, Sir Gawain, in effect, breaks the spell that she's been living under. So that's the story of Dame Ragnell and, you know, another little place where it seems to be important, and, and especially important in a personal way, because Dame Ragnall is not a queen, and she's not married to the king, and it's not about politics or sovereignty in that sense. It's simply about being uh, responsible for yourself and uh, being able to take charge of your own life. In, in other words, to live with dignity and self-confidence, uh, which is what sovereignty is really about. That's, I love that story. So, yeah. okay, so, so for right now, uh, let's take a short break, and then we'll, we'll be right back. 
You're listening to Convergence with host John Carousella on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. Find out more at fireflywillows.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome back. This is Convergence. I'm your host, John Carousella, and in this spirited conversation, I'm speaking with Tom Cowan, author of Fire in the Head. Tom, uh, it was a great story about uh, Sir Gowan and Dame Ragnell and sovereignty. Um, you have another one uh, in your in your basket of tricks. Yeah, there's uh, another story, and there's several variations on this, and more than just one story. But the the basic plot is the same in all of them, and it's it's about five brothers or three brothers. And they're kind of young men, maybe adolescent, teenage types, and they're the sons of a king or a, a chieftain, so they're like nobles or princes. And they're out in the wilderness on a very miserable night camping, so they get a little fire going. And uh, it really is a bad night. The wind is blowing, it's cold and sleeting. And they're huddled around the fire trying to keep warm. When uh, all of a sudden they sense there's someone else kind of coming out of the darkness and stepping into the, the glow of the, the fire. And when they look, it turns out to be this fantastically hideous woman, just like in the story of Dame Ragnell. Uh, she smells bad. She looks bad. She's loathsome. She's repulsive. She looks like she's been homeless for 10 years or more. And she asks for hospitality. She wants to be able to spend the night there by the fire where it's warmer. And the older brothers all say no to her. They say, no, go on, you know, stay to yourself. You, know, you, don't, you have no right to be here. But, you know, they basically don't want to share it with this loathsome woman. But the youngest brother, it's always the youngest brother in this kind of tale, uh, follows her before she gets away and says, uh, just don't, don't leave yet. You can come and you can lie by me and I'll, I'll keep you warm for the night. So she does. And in some versions of the story, he just embraces her and gives her a good night kiss. In some versions of the story, he makes love to her. And in the morning, when he wakes up, she's lying there, but like in the Dame Ragnell story, she's the most beautiful woman he's ever seen. And he says, who are you? And she says, well, I'm, I'm the woman you gave comfort to last night. And he says, but you don't look like her at all. And she says, but I am. And he says, what's your name? And she says, Sovereignty. And then she disappears. But she sees to it, since she's the goddess of sovereignty, she's the goddess of the land, she sees to it that he becomes the next king rather than his older brothers or the next chief, whichever the story is about. So here's a, another tale where um, sovereignty you know, wants to be embraced and is is a representative of the great mother goddess, the divine feminine, that needs to be embraced and needs to be honored. And it's only a man or a young boy who does that who's really fit to become the next king or the next chief. And, you know, one of the things uh, that people often ask is, well, you know, why is she always so hideous? I mean, why does she have to be ugly in these stories? And there are different answers to this. The one that I, the ones that I find to be uh, the most insightful, 
is that you're afraid of her. When you see her, your natural uh, reaction is to say, go away, I don't want to have anything to do with you. There's something scary and, and fearful about her. And this might be an insight, kind of a psychological insight into sovereignty, in that it is scary to think that you're in charge of your own life, that you have to take responsibility, you can't blame anyone else, you know, it, it's you. So that initial uh, reaction might be that we're, we're scared. And in some of the stories like this one where it's about a young boy or a young man, part of that fear might also be the fear of growing up, of becoming an adult and having to take on the responsibilities of adulthood. Uh, or in the case of, you know, the young prince, the story of the fear of having to uh, take on the responsibilities of the kingdom. But once you embrace it, that seems to be the message there, that by embracing it and accepting it and saying, uh, you know, I, I will love you, that it suddenly becomes beautiful. And uh, sovereignty really is uh, someone who enriches your life and brings beauty into your life. So anyway, the sovereignty. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's... I think that's um that's a really important part of this uh, of the whole concept of of sovereignty and and this is why i think it it sort of transcends transcends duality because it we in these stories we're looking upon the other and we're finding it ugly and uncomfortable and fearsome yeah but when we embrace that otherness in spite of our reaction to it, mm-hmm. it ceases to become other. Yeah, yeah, that that is the message, though. That you know, sovereignty means you have to embrace other people's sovereignty too and acknowledge it. And it's not about being selfish or you know being lacking concern for anyone else. You have to honor and embrace the sovereignty of others. One definition of sovereignty that I like a lot is that. Uh, sovereignty supposes that each person has a secret unknown center or life that others should respect. You know, each, each of us in some ways uh, is an unknown. As you're saying, it's the other. It can all often be scary or frightening because it's the unknown. But when you stop and think about that each person, the unknown in them is their secret life. It's, you know, it's their center. It's, it's what makes them who they are. It's their heart song. And we need to embrace that and honor that. Mm, yeah, we do. And when we do, the loathsomeness of the world disappears. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we, we get a very different experience of the rough places. Yes. Do you know what I mean? It's like... When we embrace the land, when we when we embrace the mother, the creation, or whatever you you know, however you want to talk about it, and allow ourselves to receive that which is, as opposed to trying to control and limit that which we receive. Right. If we embrace and engage without reservation and without fear, mm-hmm. there's something that happens to our own capacity to be sovereign. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's like we release tension. We let go of a particular kind of tension that exists between us and the other, which creates the discomfort that causes us the pain. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, too, part of that tension is uh, you might think of as distortion, that initially in these stories the other appears to be repulsive, but it's because you're you're really not seeing who that person is. Yeah, exactly. The, the person is, is off and, and is like, to use your word, is other. But then as soon as you embrace it, you know, that the distortion goes away and you begin to see you know, the beauty that this other person has because they too are a human being just like you. Okay. All right, Tom, thank you so much for spending time with us today. I had hey, a great, you, great time and uh, we'll, I, hopefully we'll have a chance to share more of your wisdom soon. So Tom can be reached at uh, riverdrum.com. Is there any other way that uh, you would encourage folks to get to you? No, that's, that's a good way to, to start. All right. Wonderful. Thanks, Tom. We'll talk again soon. Thanks a lot, John. I enjoyed it. A personal tarot reading can offer you insight, information, enlightenment, and empowerment along your life's path. Hi-C is a professional tarot conversationalist and ritualist with over 10 years' experience. He's available for readings in a variety of formats, including parties and events. To schedule your personal tarot reading, contact Hi-C at tarotbyhi-c.net or email him at hic at fireflywillows.com. Welcome back. This is Convergence, and I'm your host, John Carasella. I guess it was a pretty typical evening around here. I'd been meditating, doing some deep journey work, contemplating the nature of God and the divine. I was contemplating the limits of my own awareness and what connection I had with God and what connection God had with me and through me into the world. I was asking questions like, how much of me was my higher self? What was the nature of my higher self anyway? And what was the difference between my higher self and God? Was there separation? There must be, because my higher self has a lot of my personality in it, minus my dysfunctions, I figure. And God was, well... More than that. I took a break. I came in from the fire to refresh myself with a little something. And as I grabbed that little something out of the fridge, our trusty family dog, always on alert for an important mission, was at my feet. Of course. I looked down at him, smiled, and said, No, Tucker, this is not for doggies. This is for Daddy. And as usual, he looked up at me with friendly mischief in his eyes, trying to convince me to change my mind. But this time, something miraculous happened. This time I saw something I had never seen before, and it brought a whole bunch of things suddenly into focus. I saw Tucker not as a dog, but as divine consciousness, experiencing reality through a dog's body, through a dog's equipment, so to speak. Just as I was God experiencing reality through my equipment, my body, my fears and dysfunctions and habits and patterns. Tucker was divine consciousness too, trying to express itself and experience itself. This moment, this realization was was not an abstraction. It was very real and visceral and grounded and present. I was catapulted back to a common activity that Tucker and I share. 
We have a beautiful, bountiful orange tree in our backyard. From the time Tucker was a youngster, I would go pluck myself an orange, sit down on a lawn chair, peel it, and eat it. And of course, as often as not, Tucker was there with me. And being a dog, he would nose his way into the action. One for you, one for me. Back and forth with each slice of the orange. After a while, I would tire, or just be full of oranges, but Tucker never seemed quite satisfied. Eventually, I would pluck an orange and break it in half, or just crack the peel, and leave the whole thing for him as I went inside and pursued other human antics. Tucker loves oranges. Eventually, he would learn to pluck the oranges from the tree himself. But there was always something subtly different about sitting together. He enjoyed picking his own fruit and eating it. He enjoyed the fruit if I picked it and peeled it and gave the whole thing to him. But there was nothing he enjoyed more. Nothing, honestly, that he enjoys more than one for you and one for me. Suddenly, it all made sense. He's not a dog looking for food. He's divine consciousness looking for a shared experience. What is the purpose of God in creation? It's been theorized that it's all about God having the opportunity to experience himself in and through the infinite diversity of the creation. So there he was, peeking out at me through Tucker's eyes. And when I greeted him that way, there was a smile of recognition and almost a sigh of relief, as if he had been waiting a very long time for me to see him and greet him and share with him in that way. When I abstract myself upwards from the mundane, profane experience of every day, I realize that there is a great force of consciousness that is squeezed perilously and imperfectly through my small and limited physical self. And there are great swaths of it that I glimpse only erratically and imperfectly. And often that I won't let through. Things like forgiveness and charity and joy. What gets in the way are things like immaturity, petulance, and self-righteousness, and fear. Mostly fear. And looking at Tucker, I saw that there could be no fear. There could be just the differences between us, between our instrumentation, so to speak, and the delight in experiencing the same thing, a slice of orange, through these different instruments, and trying to share what that's like with each other, simply by being together and enjoying the experience together. Then what unfolded for me was a greater landscape of the divine. Everything around me became the divine, became divine consciousness experiencing. The orange tree was divine consciousness experiencing the creation through the instrument of an orange tree. The empty wine bottle became divine consciousness experiencing what it was like to be a wine bottle, formed from sand, assessed for purity and clarity and reliability, and, and filled with an elixir to be enjoyed, but patiently waiting to be tapped, to be called upon to pour out libations. And I stepped back in horror at my own now foolish inability 
to recognize the divine in the wine bottle. The Lakota people talk about the grandfathers that are the rocks that they put in the fire for the sweat lodge. They say that the stone people are among the wisest because they have great knowledge, great wisdom. I considered suddenly how this observation might be true. A rock has been the divine experiencing reality for a very, very long time. It has the lens, the experience of a geologic age, and yet a presence in this reality on this planet. How much can a rock experience? I don't know. But I realize that the ever-increasing expression of life, the increasing complexity of life on this planet, might be God's way of adapting, growing, and getting more stimulation from his experiment. I realize that's probably why God is such a fan of sexual reproduction. All that mixing and experiencing from all those new and ever so slightly different perspectives. All the pollen mixing in the air from all the trees and all the flowers. And all the antics of all the animals courting and mating and having young. And apart from reproduction, I realize that's probably why sex feels so amazing for us humans. There's something about the mingling of experience, the sharing of experience, that reaches some kind of pinnacle in sex. And great sex leads us further out into that rarefied territory. How do we experience the divine in our lives? It suddenly became a lot easier when I realized that everything around me is the divine trying to experience me. We're not alone. Far from it. We're all in this together. We're all a slice of the divine consciousness in this soup of togetherness so that we can come to know it and in the process come to know ourselves. We'll be right back. Well, that's our show. I hope you enjoyed it. You know, I haven't really ever done a segment on dog medicine. I'm honestly not really sure what it is yet. I'm still waiting for the teaching. Maybe it's about loyalty. Maybe it's a bit about compassion. Or unconditional love. Maybe, and I've been considering this a bit more, it's about having excitement, but being able to release expectations. Dogs are so good at looking forward to intimacy, engagement, and fun. They wag their tails so energetically their whole bodies move. But they're also willing to accept that maybe their expectation won't be met. And they seem to be okay with that, and settle for company, love, and affection. What expectations are we willing to hold and then release? When your dog passes, this is just one of the questions that you might face. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Thank you for joining us. This program was brought to you by Firefly Willows L-I-V-E. We hope you enjoyed the show. Please join us next time on Firefly Willows L-I-V-E for our live on-air call-in show, Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m.